When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and this is The Literary Life. T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein and James Joyce. It's Paris in the 1920s. And along with artists and musicians, these writers and many others of the lost generation all shared a singular place, a bookshop, a bookshop that became the focal point for this expat community. Not only was it a place that would hold your mail for you, but it might even publish your work. Shakespeare and Company certainly deserves its prominent place in literary history. And Sylvia Beach, its founder, taught all of us who are booksellers just what a bookstore could be. Carrie Mare, in her brilliant new novel, The Paris Bookseller, brings this rich and mythic world to life. In the words of author Stephen Rowley, The Paris bookseller is dazzling like Paris, rich and immersive like the work it celebrates, and bursting with heart and passion like every great bookstore. A dream for book lovers from start to finish. Carrie, welcome to The Literary Life. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And there's only one thing I want to say to you, and that is, that I wish I was the Paris bookseller. <laughs> well, you are the Miami bookseller. <laughs> That's right. I just got an amazing tour of this place. It's like absolutely stunning. Yeah, but we're still not in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. And, you know, I read your book with such interest, and you did such a marvelous, marvelous job bringing Sylvia Beach and her store and that the whole literary world that she helped develop in Paris, you brought it to life in such a beautiful way. And, and it is not history, but it's, it is, it's an historical novel. And you also, in the afterward, write so well about just what a historical novel really is. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I feel like there's this really interesting and sometimes difficult, but ultimately productive tension in a historical novel, in particular, a biographical novel like this one, which is about a woman who really walked on planet Earth, right? Um, On the one hand, um, 
I want to do right by Sylvia Beach because she really, she really did live this amazing life. Um, and so, you know, we do a lot of research to make sure that we have her voice and I, I have her voice in my ear and, you know, the other characters, James Joyce, Ernest Hemingway. Um, but at the same time, I'm holding this other reality in my mind, which is that it is a novel. It is necessarily an interpretation of Sylvia's life, of Joyce's life, of Hemingway's life. And so, um, you know, I, I feel like I have to really embrace that tension and, and the truth that I'm, I'm interpreting it. My James Joyce and, and uh, Sylvia Beach would be different from yours if you were to write the same novel. Well, and that brings me, in contemplating this uh, discussion with you today, I've, my mind went down so many different roads because Sylvia Beach has meant so much to me in my own career. I mean, Books and Books is now celebrating its 40th anniversary. And I think the first time I really began to think of the possibility of having a bookstore was when I was in when I was a freshman in college and I took a survey of 20th century lit and I realized that at that period of time with all these writers we were reading, whether it was Joyce or Fitzgerald or Eliot or any of those people, that Sylvia Beach's Shakespeare and Company was at the center of culture. Yes. And we have a lot in common because I discovered this as a, as a college English major also. <laughs> well, and what's interesting is I filed it away, probably like you did. I think our paths were very similar. I filed it away and I took a few detours. One mm -hmm. of them was going to law school, which I went to. <laughs> and after that, after I realized that wasn't my calling, I hearkened back to this idea of being a community center and a place where um, writers of all sorts, of all different kinds, come flowing through, and where you, instead of are the writer or the producer, what you are is you are the conduit with which all this great work comes through. And that was the first time where I realized that I could get some agency as a bookseller and be creative at the same time. Yes. And I mean, also you didn't use the word curator, but you're also a curator, right? Like you are choosing, I mean, I've, I've had the opportunity to now walk through your store and we're sitting in this absolutely amazing room of French art books. And this is, this is a beautifully curated room. We might as well be in a gallery, right? And so that is a very special role that you play as a bookseller. Well, and what I loved about what you did with this, because I've read every, bi I've read her autobiography and I read Women of the Left Bank, and I read The Sylvia Beach and the Lost Generation. So I've always, I've read so much, you know, Movable Feast. Right. I've read all the books that you so helpfully supply <laughs> at the back of the book. So I don't want to do any spoilers in terms of how you turn this into, how you put the, the meat on the bone <laughs> of the story and how you made it probably much more interesting <laughs> than who they really were. So what we should talk about a little bit, because so many people, I think, listening, for them, Sylvia Beach might be a revelation. 
book people love the current Shakespeare and Company in Paris, and rightfully so. It has its own amazing history starting in 1951 when it was opened by George Whitman, another book-selling um, American, but it was called Le Mistral. And Sylvia herself was a regular there, which I love because she did have to close Shakespeare and Company during the Nazi occupation in 1941, um, and she did not reopen. Um, so the current Shakespeare and Company has been in the spot that it is still at, looking right at Notre Dame Cathedral, which is an amazing location, um, since 1951. So, And it's about 10 minutes away from where Sylvia Beach opened up her bookshop. Exactly. It's a 10-minute walk. In fact, I did a little walking tour that you can find online. Oh, you did? <laughs> yes, oh, on, gonna, on trip fiction. I will absolutely look for that. Yes. Oh, I will definitely look for that. Yes. So what I wanted to do is I am going to let everybody discover your book which is an amazing book called The Paris Bookseller. But I thought a good entree into whetting their appetite for buying your book is to talk a little bit about the real Sylvia Beach. So she she came to Paris as a teenager when she was 15 years old. Her father, Sylvester Beach, was a Presbyterian minister, and he was brought over, he and his family were brought over so that he could be the head of the American church in Paris. And it was a, sort of a one-year gig, and then they all went back. Um, and she finished her growing up in the, the States, mostly in New Jersey, but she also lived in New York for a time. She um, campaigned for women's suffrage during the First World War. She did a smattering of things like uh, volunteering with the Red Cross and also volunteering to, you know, till the fields in France while the men were off, you know, on the front lines. So, and I mention those things because I think it really shows what a crusader and adventurous that Sylvia really was. She was always out there looking for interesting things to do, meaningful things to do with her life. And in 1917, she finds herself in Paris again, living in the Palais Royal with her actress sister Cyprian, who is starring in this um, weekly film called Judex. And Sylvia is a little bit at loose You handle end. that so beautifully. Oh, thank you. Book, the way. You really, really do. <laughs> thank you. So, you know, Sylvia's a little bit at loose ends. She's doing some writing. She sort of stumbles into a bookstore in the left bank one day owned by a French woman named Adrienne Monnier, who opened her bookstore in 1915 in the, the thick of the war. And... Um, was the one of the very first female French bookstore owners. Um, and Sylvia- And they were all books in French. And they were all books, right, exactly. It, and so I think this is also important. It was a hybrid bookstore and lending library. Because I think importantly, you know, books were really expensive and writers, the writers who came to Adrienne's store didn't have a lot of money. Um, so, but for a small subscription, annual subscription, they could um, check out books as you would um, in, in any library, right? So, so Adrienne's store, this, this um, bookstore lending library hybrid, also offered readings. She did a little bit of publishing, and all the, the major French intellectual, bohemian French intellectuals were going to her store, and Sylvia just absolutely fell in love with this life. And, you know, it's I, one of the fun surprises in the research was to discover that, like, Sylvia um, originally wanted to open a French-language bookstore um, in New York, to, to attract right. the Francophiles of New York. But as is still true today, the rents were too high. <laughs> <laughs> <That's great. laughs> right? I mean, like 100 years ago, 
people, the friends were still too high, was too high in New York. So, but very, but thank goodness, right? Because it very quickly became an idea to offer an English language bookstore and lending like, it could be my dog, my dog. <laughs> By the way, this is a, this, we've been doing so many of these from Zoom oh. that this is one of the first ones we're doing actually live <gasps> in the bookstore. So and for those of you who've heard this in the past, Sometimes you'll hear people eating, you'll hear the cash register going, and that's I love it. one of our resident dogs doing his thing. I love it. Um, okay, so I was going to say, so thank goodness the rents were too high in New York. Um, so she, she, she quickly realized as a result of her relationship with these French writers in Paris that they all wanted to read more books in English. <laughs> um, and so she thought, but they were hard to come by in Paris at the time. And so she realized that she could kind of fill this need with an English language bookstore and lending library um, in the same neighborhood as Adrienne's shop. And Shakespeare and Company was founded and opened in November of 1919. And then another serendipitous thing happened, and that is that World War I ended. Right. And then you had the lost generation, right? Yes, yes. So even though Sylvia sort of originally conceived of, of this store kind of um, as serving the French intellectual community, very quickly, Ezra Pound walks into her store, fixes some furniture, and tells everybody else to come and join the party. <laughs> That's and right. and so you know by the er very early 1920s you know you have uh, a very young Ernest Hemingway wandering in Sherwood Anderson um you know, one of my very first epigraphs in, in the book is, is something that Adrienne said in her own memoir, which is famous people begin by being unknown. And I just absolutely love that because I got to write about these famous people before they were famous. And it's just, I feel like it's such a privilege and it was so much fun to do. It really was so interesting that if you were young and you were an American or even British. Right, right, exactly. And you were in Paris, you had to go to Shakespeare Company. Well, you had to go there also because she would hold your mail for you. Right, <laughs> right. And then, and then the other thing that you talk about in the book that you, 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 you bring out so beautifully is the role of the little magazine. The whole scene of avant-garde literary magazines that were coming out of um, America and England. Um, and, you know, if, in my book, the most important one is called The Little Review, which was published out of Greenwich Village by two American women named uh, Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, um, who were the two people who ultimately stood trial for publishing... Uh, serializing chapters of James Joyce's right. Ulysses. So you mentioned Ulysses. So central to your book is something that to me has been one of the most significant things about Shakespeare and Company. Yes. That it is the store that published the very first editions of Ulysses. It's also one of the least known things, right? You were asking about less, less known. It's like, it's probably one of the most important things it did, or she did, and also one of the least known. Yeah, and I also, I've always loved the story. And I, you know, over the 40 years, we've sold old books in the days before the internet. And we actually had coming through the store that we sold a few editions, old later editions, <gasps> of those Shakespeare and Company editions oh. of Ulysses. They were beautiful. I'm sure. And blue wrappers. Mm. They were just so, so beautiful. But the other thing that always struck me so amazingly was to think of the fact 
that Ulysses, which is probably one of the most difficult books in the English language to actually read, which is also, it's one of the most brilliant books, that most of it, the type was set by French typesetters yes. who knew no English. Yes. Um, and, and that Sylvia had no fewer than 12 typists working on this book over, you know, a period of almost a year. as Because, you know, at the time that she offered to publish it, he hadn't finished it yet. And there were all these competing versions of the earlier chapters. So she had to figure out how to, you know, basically... What is what was going to be the official version? And so this French type, uh, this French printer was setting the type and sending her page proofs, you know, just for minor corrections, right? But Joyce wound up writing a third of the novel on the page proofs. And I, I always like to point out that in modern publishing contracts, there's actually something that says you may not change more than 10% at the page proof stage, or you will, you the author will be charged. To reset the oh, type. that's really interesting. So I like to call that the James <laughs> the Joyce clause. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So talk about how, talk about Joyce's relationship with Sylvia Beach and also how that book came to be published by Sylvia. Well, so I'll start with that's the second part. Um, so as I already said, it was two women, Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, who were the editors um, and publishers of this The Little Review. And... Um, they were serializing chapters over the course of several years, starting in 1918, and it, those chapters quickly came under the, the radar of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, the Vice Squad. Any copies of the, the little review that contained chapters of Ulysses um, were seized by the post office. The poor post office just wanted to deliver the mail, right? But they were, they were an instrument of censorship at this time. And, and they would often get destroyed, etc. So, so Sylvia and her friends and you know, in Paris are kind of watching all of this happening, waiting for the news until finally one day, um, uh, John Sumner's had enough and, and actually arrests um, Margaret and Jane and it, it, they go to trial. And I think it's really important to, to point out that it was two women publishers who were the ones who stood trial for publishing Ulysses. It was never Joyce or the book itself. But what happened was they lost. They were, in fact, um, found guilty of publishing, quote, obscenity. Um, and... Uh, I'll let readers read what happens in the book. There's a charm. This is, there's some charming anecdotes related to who pays their fine and everything. Um, but so basically, the news of all of this finally reaches uh, Sylvia and everybody in Paris. And Sylvia's like, "I'm just so sorry." You know, by this point, she and James Joyce are friends. He's a regular at Shakespeare and Company. And he's, there's some remarkable photos if anyone wants to find them. Yes, of Joyce being in. Shakespeare and yes. Company, they're kind of stunning when you see them. Yes, and they're easy, They're widely available yeah. on the internet. Anyone can look and, and find them. Um, so she quickly offers to publish it herself. She you know, basically picks up the baton that Margaret and Jane had to set, set down. And um, you know, I think this is a way in which also Adrienne was an inspiration to her because Adrienne has been publishing um, work, not full book length works, but, but short works um, by the French uh, writers of the time over a period of you know, the, last few, the last few years. So again, Adrienne is kind of a mentor to her in this um, new stage of her 
her life. Um, so she offers to publish it. Joyce accepts her offer and away they go. And, um, you know, so he's frantically trying to finish. She's trying to gather um, uh, subscribers to the book, so people who kind of prepay or prepay some amount um, to f- buy the book in the future. But like the real challenge is she has to figure out how to smuggle this illegal book back into the United States alongside, as I just like to say, the illegal hooch because it's <laughs> it's prohibition. Right. Um, so. I will just say about that that Hemingway plays a fun role in figuring out how to smuggle Ulysses back into the States. And you should read The Paris Bookseller to really, it, you, you bring it to life. So Thank you. There. Thank you. Um, the other thing that we should probably talk about, which we didn't, was that um, Sylvia was introduced to the uh, Parisian literary community through Adrian. Right. And Adrian had her bookstore. And they were also lovers as right. well. Right. Yes. And yes. Adrian kept her bookstore, and Sylvia's was virtually across the street. Yes. Yeah, so when when originally Shakespeare and Company opened, it opened up around the corner from uh, from Adrian's shop. Adrian's shop was always on the Rue de l'Odéon. Um, Sylvia originally opened up on the Rue du Petrin, like really like a two minute walk away. But within two years, she had the opportunity to move the store across the street from Adrian's shop. And really, that was another kind of surprise in my research because it's not something that Sylvia writes about that much in her own memoir. I think because she wrote it in the 50s when times and perceptions of lesbian relationships were very different than they were in the 1920s um, when they were having their relationship. Um, So, but... Adrienne names their their little piece of literary Paris Odiania, which I just think is so wonderful. It's like a you know a mythical literary paradise. Joyce calls it Stratford on Odion, <laughs> which is wonderful. you know both of them are just so such wonderful uh, tr- names or such wonderful tributes to the service that they really provided the Franco-American literary community during those those decades. And that was, like I said, it was a surprise. I didn't really realize that Shakespeare and Company and Lo- had kind of a sister store, um, an equal, right across the street, which was La Maison. And then what it did also wasn't just the literary community. It was the entire artistic community Correct. As well. Right, exactly. Man Ray was a regular. Picasso, they all went and there. The, and how about George Antiel, right? Exa- Lived right. above. Yes, George Antheil of the Ballet Mechanique, yes, um, lived above the store. And there are great stories about how, like, the, you know, his, like, cacophonous notes would rain down on the store (laughs) when he woke up, which I think was later in the day. So tell me, (laughs) I mean, I know what draws me to this story, and I know what will drive everyone listening to this story who loves books. What is it that drew you to this story? Well, I think it's the same. It's it's all the things we were talking about. Um, you know, I was I just first discovered Sylvia's story when I was an undergraduate in college, obsessed with the 1920s. I took all the classes that I could, um, you know, on this time period. And um, you know, one day I was walking down Telegraph Avenue where there are lots of you know bookstores. Um, you know those great bargain bins in front of college bookstores. So I was you know looking through one of those one day and I found like a used copy of Sylvia's memoir. I bought it and I read it and I was just absolutely entranced. Right, but I was 20 years old. I just I think as you said earlier filed it away under good to know. 
um, and, and went about my life. So you fast forward more than two decades <laughs> and I'm kind of looking around for, I've written two other historical novels and I'm kind of thinking about what I want to write about next. And I very quickly alight on Sylvia. And I honestly, once I thought of it, the fact that I've been carrying her story around with me for my entire adult life, I couldn't believe I hadn't thought of it sooner. Um, but I'm kind of glad I didn't. Like, I think it, I think as a first try at historical fiction, trying to put words in the mouth of Ernest Hemingway would have just like <laughs> made me want to quit. <laughs> but uh, you also talk, I think, so, so honestly about in your, you have a wonderful author's note, which I re always appreciate Thank you. in a book. And you talk so honestly about, you know, what's true and what's not so true in the book. Even to the point where you go, look, I didn't necessarily research all the rainstorms that might have happened right. on the days that I'm talking about. Right. So I had the freedom to put rain in when yes. I wanted, yes. which I think is a really wonderful tribute to the, the kind of confidence you had in writing about this. Well, thank you. I mean, like, you know, one I had to make some hard choices with the research for this book because it's about writers who left behind entire lifetimes worth of work of their own work, right? And they're famous writers. So, you know, <laughs> thousands of books are written about them in this time period. So I had to make real choices about, you know, how much research to do. I, I could have researched this book for a decade and never written a word, right? So I had to, I had to really think carefully about what I wanted to include. And what was helpful to me was I knew it was going to be from Sylvia's point of view. It's, it's in close third person, but what was really important was to capture these people from Sil through Sylvia's eyes, right? So, what's interesting to me today is I first I first really started thinking about her story almost fifty years ago, actually. Mm. You know, when I was in college, when I was first in college, and so the question, and it seemed so much more present and so much more current because you did have stores. That are there are a couple of them are still around, but there was the Gotham Book Mart in New York mm -hmm. that had some kind of connection in a way to Shakespeare, and of course there's City Lights with Ferlin Getty right. that yep. has that kind of you know it's it's kind of it's got the heritage that it has the lineage right. that can be traced back to, to to Shakespeare and Company, but today with the kind of technological advances that we have, that kind of bookstore has a really rough time. In fact, in Paris, I've been reading that a lot of the English language bookstores are having a very hard time. Yeah, I've, I've, I've read the same thing. And in fact, you know, Shakespeare and Company itself in the earlier, the, in the first sort of piece of the pandemic, they launched a Friends of Shakespeare and Company, which was very much like and in the tradition of the Friends of Shakespeare and Company that Sylvia herself had to launch in the during the Depression in the 1930s. So... Yeah, I, it's true. I, I also think you handled. I'm glad. I'm glad you stopped when you did in the book because, and with your after note, you tell us what happened to Sylvia, what happened to Shakespeare and Company. So talk a little bit about that, because because it wasn't as if George bought Sylvia's store. Correct. Right. It was no. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, deciding where to put the frame <laughs> around the action of the book was, I think, one of the challenges of writing the book. Um, you know, there, there were some scenes that I, that I wrote from later in her life, you know, from during the, um, 
during the the occupation of Paris and and everything. But I I wound up feeling like especially my editor and I had some good conversations about this, that the real heart, the beating heart of the book was opening the store, publishing Ulysses, and sort of the, the journey that that she and jo- Joyce and Ulysses went on all together. Um, uh, and it's, it's more than just the fact that she published it, right? Like, I mean, you know, it was so successful. Um, the American and British publishers came back around to, to, um, to, to woo, woo Joyce away and, and try and um, bring the book back through the legal system in the 30s. And for someone who, on the surface, when you look at her in the photographs, mm-hmm. and even, even when you read her autobiography, she, she seems so reserved I agree. You know, and she seems sort of retiring in a lot of ways, but she was fierce. Yeah. So the the way that it closed down during the war was really really phenomenal. You want to tell that story? Yeah. So 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 um, in 1941, um, James Joyce has recently passed away, um, and the the Nazis are occupying Paris, and basically a, a Nazi officer comes to Shakespeare and Company one day and tries to buy Finnegan's Wake, and she refuses to sell it to him. <laughs> um, um, and uh, so so basically, he gets mad and comes back the next day and says. Um, uh, you know, uh, we're going to shut, you know, we're going to shut down your store. <laughs> so she's like, not if I don't shut it down first. She, she calls her, her, her French friends and they, within hours, completely dismantle Shakespeare and company to the point of dismantling. They, they move all the books to the fourth floor of the building where they, they stay until the end of the war. And they, they even dismantle the shelves and paint over the sign. Yeah. They call it something else, right? Do they? Or, I actually, or maybe not. I can't they remember paint, that. I think they just paint it. Over I think they paint right. over it. But but what's it ultimately becomes an antiques shop, and but and now actually, if you go to the number twelve Rue de l'Odéon in Paris, it's nothing, and there's a plaque. But I think that that's kind of appropriate. It's it's actually the fact that there's no nothing there is is it the finest tribute in some ways to the, that that address because how could there be anything else? Carrie, attitude? I love this book. I'm so glad that you chose. Sylvia Beach as a subject. And I think choosing to focus on what was for her probably the most singular experience she had was that relationship with James Joyce was such a great choice as well. Thank you. And you're gonna bring you're gonna bring this kind of analog approach to the world to a whole new generation of readers, I hope. I hope so too. And it is, I have to say, it is such a compliment that you like this book so much. And so I'm really, I'm really honored to be here and chat with you, you today. Would you read a little something from I it? would. Um, I'm going to read from the very first chapter. Um, so here we go. Chapter one. It was hard not to feel that Paris was the place. Sylvia had been trying to get back for 15 years, ever since the Beach family had lived there when her father, Sylvester, was the pastor of the American church in the Latin Quarter, and she was a romantic teenager who couldn't get enough of Balzac or Cassoulet. What she remembered most about that time, what she'd carried in her heart when her family had returned to the United States, was the sense that the French capital was brighter than any other city she'd ever been in or could be in. It was more than the flickering gas lamps that illuminated the city after dark or that ineluctable glowing white stone from which so much of the city was built. It was the brilliance of the life burbling in every fountain, every student meeting, every puppet show in the Jardin de Luxembourg and opera in the Théâtre de la Odeon. 
It was the way her mother sparkled with life, read books and hosted professors, politicians, and actors, serving them rich glistening dishes by candlelight at dinners where there was spirited debate about books and world events. Eleanor Beach told her three daughters, Cyprian, Sylvia, and Holly, that that they were living in the most rare and wonderful of places, and it would change the course of their lives forever. And it certainly did. <laughs> Carrie, Carrie Mayer, the book is The Paris Bookseller. It truly is, as someone says on the cover of your book, a love letter to books, bookstores, and book lovers everywhere. And it truly is. Thank you so much for being on The Literary Life. Thank you for having me today. 